All right, we're back with myself, Johnny, and Pat. How you going? Oh, how's it going, Johnny? Oh, good. Almost there. Indeed. And yeah. end, of, end, of a, end of a pretty busy year. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'll start off with uh, a video from the Hoover Institute about the cause of the 2008 uh, GFC. Let's take a step back. 1983 until 2008, the American economy experiences a quarter of a century of nearly uninterrupted economic growth. Then, beginning in the autumn of 2008, trouble. What went wrong? Well, actually, it started, it started much earlier, and I think the first, it was the housing boom, followed by the housing bust, which occurred in 2006. 2006, much and earlier. So, and then, so the reverberations of that, that is, there were people out there who had trillions of dollars invested in securities based upon mortgages, and when people stopped paying their mortgages, the value of the securities vanished into thin air. So you do not argue that this was a financial crisis that spilled over into the real economy. You argue that it was a problem in the real economy, particularly the housing market, yes. that started the problem in the financial sector. Oh, absolutely. If people had kept paying their mortgages, the securities would have been good, and we would have all lived happily ever after. Now, the, now the problem is that the politicians uh, made the mortgages more risky by changing the rules. In other words, at one time, mortgages were considered the safest investment. This, this is for the widows and orphans who need, need their money coming in regularly, and you put it into, into real estate. But the politicians decided that we must have more uh, home ownership and more affordable housing. And so they began to uh, prescribe rules. You had to uh, uh, lend money to people you wouldn't have lent to before. And, of course, there was a reason they weren't lending to them before. And we discovered the hard way what that reason was, that they weren't likely to be able to pay them, to pay them back. Oh, I just cut off there. But I like how, how he summarized uh, some of the stuff he discussed yeah. from uh, part one. Mm. That is, housing markets were a very stable and secure way to earn your income. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the widows, the orphans, if their parents died, then mm. they, they had, still had the house pass on to them mm. and they can sell that house and to, to generate income but now the idea is that the governments won't come involved and say we want everyone to have home ownership yeah. and let's change the rules so that you can now lend to anyone that you yeah. want without you know this regardless of, of their ability or means to actually pay back the loan yes yeah and all that does is set this ticking time bomb which yes. we found later on in yeah. 2006 in the gfc that mm. they can't afford these houses thomas soul is economic genius in that his ability to look at a problem and explain the problem in a way that is clear and it makes sense mm -hmm. so i'll quickly recap some of the stuff that we talked last uh mm -hmm. last session and then i'll we'll jump into it so from last session we talked about perceptions within government and people based on reports there were discrimination against minorities and low-income earners and home loans so what we needed to do was to make things equal by pushing the law to lower credit requirements and to put quotas to force the banks to, to do the law. And then any banks that wouldn't comply with uh, the law would have future business decisions such as new branch openings or mergers denied by the government. There was another one about the Community Re Reinvestment Act in 1977 that gave government authorities the instrument to enforce such laws. And then when there's further media out outrage, the government adds these extra rules on the assumption that people are following the laws. Hmm. The assumption is that, you know, the government knows best or we know best and we are correct. So these guys who are, uh, these bureaucrats are located far away from the center of business and transactions. They don't conduct the face-to-face -face bank interviews for loans 
they assume that they're qualified and they're correct and they can dictate how business is done. Mm. So that's like, you know, good intentions gone bad. Uh, and then we talked about enabling factors, which are the laws that allow this to be a le- legit action, you know. So, you know, predatory loans, not good. Yeah. But because now you're forced to give out these loans to people who, who really can't afford to these to do these things. Yep. Well, especially if you're marketing to them and saying, hey, you don't have to put a down payment, you don't have to pay the it's delay on the interest, uh, no credit check, nothing. These it's that's the sort of marketing push of people of getting people through the door. Mm-hmm. It's it's setting up a ha- giant house of cards that's going to collapse on itself eventually. Yep. So what are the other contributing factors? So we have we talked about enabling factors. Now we need to look at impelling factors, so likelihood. Mm. So what was a what increased the probability of this occurring, and then what was the actual trigger? That is the precipitating factor. That's what he breaks. Uh, Thomas Sowell breaks it down. So what increased the likelihood of people taking up these subprime loans? And I've, I just gathered a bit of material uh, from his book. And remember uh, housing restriction laws we talked about in the episode about you know buying the dream home. Yeah. Stuff like environmental laws, minimum lot sizes, building densities, zoning orders, laws artificially restrict the supply of housing mm. because the builder and the supplier is unable to meet demand in a quick enough way. Like, you know, if you want to build a certain house, a three-story house, you need yeah. to go apply for a permit. Well, it takes time, it takes money. Yeah, right. got to cut through all the red tape, yep. all the bureaucracy. And so these things artificially uh, restrict the supply of housing and that contributes to, you know, soaring house prices. The other one side is buying, so speculating on house prices that they will continue to soar and saying, you know, we will never have a housing crisis. Mm. This was like, you know, pre-2006, pre- yeah. you know, mindset. And, you know... Well, essentially more... the banks were too big to fail, was the expression. Or, or, or it's more like, you know, I remember in Sydney, one of my um, one of my cousins saying, you know, Sydney house prices will never drop. Right. When was this? 2000 and... It was either 2004 to 2007. Okay. Yeah, somewhere between that. So just before the GFC. Just before the GFC. Now, I don't really have the actual stats of Sydney House, the actual yeah. Sydney House bust. Mm. I don't. Do you remember if there was a bust in? in um, I don't remember. But you know, people just did feel so many effects of the GFC in Australia, just not as much as say America. Yeah. So people think it's uh, going back. People think it's good to flip houses and to turn out tiny profit. We yeah. talked about before. You know, buy one house and then you get a phone call. Hey, you want to buy it now? Yeah. And I can flip this before these, you know, the... Do a little bit of renovation and then increase its value and yeah. move it on. And then you, because houses are hot, then mm. you're able to get it off the market before the penalty period starts kicking yeah. in. And then we talk about first home buyers, buy now rather than later. The loan is therefore worth it because locking that loan at the lower uh, oh, amount because you are expecting house prices to keep soaring. So yeah. get it now and then later. For each of these uh, group, the buyers, the speculators, the home, the low-income mm-hmm. house owners, it made sense to them, according to the environment, to use these subprime mortgages uh, because of a perceived housing shortage and expected soaring house mm-hmm. prices. Uh, the reality was that housing shortage was caused by artificial restrictions that drove up 
housing prices. Uh, but mortgages was one of the methods for buyers to extend the credit to enter a competitive market. So lenders, uh, so there's demand to by the regulars to buy low credit loans and the government enforces the, these uh, regulations. Uh, so in terms of defaulting on loans and the bust, areas that had these restricted supplies of housing and how high housing prices were more likely to have these subprime mortgages. So from his book, Saul writes, uh, these risks were not hypothetical. In the same issue of the New York Times, which this story appeared, another news story appeared under the headline, Mortgage Delinquencies Soar. One in 10 borrowers is at least a month behind on payments. For FHA loans, more than 14% of borrowers were at least a month behind on their payments. These problems, like many of the other housing problems during the boom and bust, were concentrated in four states, California, Florida, Arizona, and Nevada. In Florida, one-fourth of all people with mortgages were behind in their payments. So we think, you know, subprime mortgage crisis and GFC, it, it was all over America. Yeah. Well, no, because it's more located on... It was localized to the individual California, uh, Florida. So I guess these places would have these housing laws in place which artificially restricted yeah. supply. One interesting thing about the makeup of the United States is that you have many individual states with very different rules on how... You, the how the, on diff, very different laws and rules within each of those states. Mm-hmm. And the design of the United States was to be kind of a melting pot of ideas where each state could try different things out independent of the others. And if the, there were consequences to those decisions, it would hurt the states, the individual states. Yeah. But the, the design was not, was for the, the ramifications of bad decision-making enacted by different states. It wouldn't carry over and impact its neighbors. Yeah, if I if I take a step back and and think about the whole you know federal government then state government right yeah like we I see it we see it in Australia mm. how different states react to coronavirus yeah we have I was yeah. like Victoria was just I'm, I'm not sure how would you describe it um, they went in very loose and then when the spikes occurred they like, cracked down hard because they had the the BLM protests yeah in the beginning in March that they encouraged that encouraged. the state encouraged. government encouraged now. I'm not sure whether they can directly contribute the activism with, uh, with the spikes and spreads, mm. but it's like... What the state government said was that this protest for Black Lives Matter was A-OK. You could go there and protest, but anti... Uh, what was it? It was um, anti-lockdown protest. That was bad. Mm. You can't do that. Why? It's it didn't, make, it didn't it, make sense. It yeah. was essentially, their, their appro- the approach that the... Victorian state government went th- went down was there was no consistent standard yeah. so there was a lot of con- there was a lot of confusion created because going I can do this but I can't do this it's the same type of thing but there's like there's slight differences it, there was no consistent standard whereas if you compare New South Wales or Queensland each state tried different things and I think that out of all the states probably New South Wales has probably done the best I think Really, I think so at least. Okay, mm. uh, I haven't really looked. Queen, Queensland's probably close, close second. Because so, what I'm really tired of is yeah. just listening to infection rates rather than mortality and recovery rates. Yes, yeah. Because the infection rates, it's it's an airborne disease. Yeah, of course you're going to, you're going to get infected. Uh, there's a higher likelihood of getting infected. The question is, are you going to die from this? Did we actually see 
hospitals at full capacity? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. Yeah. The good thing, the good news that isn't reported, though, is the recovery rate. You, and you, you've tapped on something really important there. But each of the states approached the problem in different ways. And there was a big call around about, I think it was around June, July, for to throw that out and go, we need a universal approach. <laughs> we need the government in Canberra to dictate the rules for the entire nation. When you make a call a call for that, what you often don't think about is how do you logistically manage uh, something like that to yeah. that scale? It's, it's almost inconceivable. No, and it's like federalizing firefighting services. Yeah, exactly. It's like the bushfire. How, how do you know when the bushfire is there? You need to send word and then you need to mobilize mobilize the firefighters and then you're going okay how many do we send what's what's the what's the proportionate response yeah because because i think you'd be concerned if like say if it's all centralized then someone who's not part of your local state will say well you know new south wales is burning more than queensland so let's send all the queensland firefighters into new south wales oh how do you feel about that exactly exactly. it's your own homes you're looking after yeah so and this is where, when if we switch back to America, where the federal government instituted, created institutions such as Freddie Mae, Freddie Mac, the and Fannie, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Yeah. Thank you, thank, thank you. When they instituted, when they created those institutions to try and correct the perceived problems within the housing market, which they again we discussed in the last episode, talking about that these problems were the perception that there was racism, inherent racism in our home ownership. When you create these federal institutions to try and govern home loans, it's too big a problem to solve with one group of people mm-hmm. in the, on the federal level because they're too, they, they are too separate or divorced from the actual people's decisions they're impacting. Yeah, and, and they, don't and they have, can't know. And they don't have the right stats. Like, all, all yeah. you had from... That study was the stats that said uh, approval and denial rates, and then yeah. what race were they and what income level they were. Yeah, they didn't say okay, what grounds were they rejected? What was the collateral that not, they were putting up? Not important. <laughs> I think it's important. Oh, I, I, I sorry, I'm, I'm talking in, on on behalf of the um yeah. of the institution. They go, yeah. that's that's not important information. But you and I would go, no, no, that's critical information that's needed to in, make an informed decision. Yeah. Obviously, that wasn't that wasn't what happened, but I think it's because the decision makers were so far removed from the people directly impacted by the decisions that there was no conceivable way for them to know what the impact of their decisions actually were going to have. Mm-hmm. So they just chug along, and then institution created this house of cards that then fell in on itself. It ended up that the the individual citizens living in states outside of now was it California, Nevada, Florida, Arizona. And Arizona? Yes. People living outside of those states, their lives are then ruined as well as a as a direct repercussion of decisions that were made by other states. Yeah. All right. So that was impelling factors, and we saw that you know the likelihood wasn't universal across the whole of america but it was certain states yeah but they had that flow on as you said yeah 
All right, so the next one was precipitating factors. So what was a trigger that led to the subprime mortgage crisis? And what was the thing that caused all the dominoes to fall? So what we, we listened to earlier from Thomas Sowell was that if people simply kept the mortgages, there'll be no crisis, right? Yeah. The money will keep going through and we all will live happily ever after. But how is that happily ever after when, you know, when you notice it's taking time bomb? Yeah. All right, so these well, top- if you're a politician, you go, oh, that's a can. Let me kick that down the road a little bit longer. Yeah, so these toxic loans were still perceived as valuable mm. when the income was coming through, and they stopped when they were defaulted. So as soon as they defaulted, they were worthless. And so why did people default on these loans? Well, it's because of falling house prices was one of the key factors. If you were one of the speculators, if you were buying a home and you were maintaining that mortgage, and you are almost creeping into that penalty rates, and all of a sudden interest rates rose, mm. then you couldn't keep up. But I, I do believe from the scenario that we've read is that in 2006, interest rates rose first because mm. they couldn't keep it at the all-time low. Yeah. at the art- as Again, the all-time low being artificially deflated? It would be deflated, wouldn't suppressed, it? Yeah, yeah. Suppressed. Yeah, suppressed. Artificial suppression. That, that's a good term. Yeah. And... Yeah, so artificial suppression, eventually, you know, they, they have to increase it. And as, as a result, demand fell. Yeah. And then house prices fell. And then all of a sudden, people were defaulting on the home loans. And then you had that sort of cycle, falling house prices and also interest rates rising as well. So there was also one incorrect assumption is that people weren't able to pay or some inability to pay. Hmm. Uh, the turning point in 2006 was, yeah, as we said, it was they chose to stop paying. Yeah. I will read uh, another passage. So from Saul, it says, in short, even some people who could not afford to pay off their mortgages were now faced with incentives to stop doing so. People who had borrowed against it, against the equity in their homes were, of course, at increased risk of finding that what they owe now exceeded the value of the remaining equity in their home. When they had both a mortgage to pay and a home equity loan to repay, here too were people who were not trapped by circumstances beyond the control, but who had simply chosen risky ways of getting money and loss. So home equity loan was one of the key things. Uh, and that's an, a loan that you could borrow money and use your house as collateral. Yeah. And w- what you could do was sell that house as a backup. Yeah. But, so, so essentially, uh, we, we have had some, a similar model in Australia where you can get a second mortgage out on your house. Mm-hmm. Same sort of idea. But obviously that's on the proviso that you can pay back the second loan in addition to the first loan and so the mortgage that's on your house as well. Mm. But the risk of that is that if you default on either loan, then your house is the bank's. And then your house is also worthless. Exactly. Which affects the whole housing market. Exactly, yeah. It's very it's a very different story if this happens on a on an individual level or if like there's a small handful of loans that default the market can compensate for that and it, and it manages itself but we're talking about actually we're we talking about hundreds of thousands in, of homes is that actually um, i don't know the stat talk about what was the, the stat we read like 588,000 588,000 that that was loans right but but those were people who could afford to pay the loan right. but chose not to because so it poss- was meaningless right so it's possibly there's we don't we don't have the stat do we for how many could not pay correct no i i I'm pretty sure it's in a book. Yeah, but um, for, sa- I, uh, yeah. for sake of our, but for sake of the, what we're talking about right here, we're talking about mass numbers of 
loans defaulting at exactly the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I think we just read all all the stuff there. So the next bit was uh, reactions and solutions. And this is a bit where I rather just read from the, the book yeah. because I want the listeners to also look at the book as well. I've just summarized some of the reactions that you would get. And they're predictable reactions. So one was corporate greed. These bankers are too greedy and they made these uh, really bad decisions. So the counter argument is that some of these corporations and banks, you know, so Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, they, mm. and investment corporations, they also lost money. And if you're mm. also executive, you had your your stock options and, and you had your um, your bonuses. So them were compensated in the form of shares, right? Yeah. So they also lost money yeah. as well. But you got to understand that. Why do we talk about it's not their fault? It's because not totally not, their not fault. entirely, yeah. Was that the laws were put in place. Yeah. The laws were set up by the government. So so lending to low-income people mm. or people that you would know would not be able to pay was yeah. still legalized by yeah. these acts. And they were also encouraged. Mm. I think, you know, when you say about corporate greed, it's a scapegoat. It's a blame thing that oh, the yeah. government will say. Yeah. It's essentially it's what it's the argument that's often made when the government doesn't want to accept responsibility. In this case, when the government did not want to accept responsibility for the hand that they played. Mm. Here's another one. It was the deregulation that was put in place. We've given too much trust to these corporations. But the counter argument is that it ignores government pressures put on the banks. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they were given quotas and they were also looking to buy these subprime mortgages or loans given to low credit score rating people. Yeah. Government solutions. So in the scenario that is put out there by the media yeah. and people out there is that banks are evil. We're giving them too much trust. They got out of control. What's, yeah. what's the counter solution? It's uh, more government regulations. And so we had politicians rose to defend Community Reinvestment Act. They were also offering banks the bailouts. They were also protecting these subprime mortgages, trying to, you know, that the dam is busting and, you know, cracks coming in when people just keep defaulting on a loan. So let's insure them. <laughs> and let's use government taxpayers' yeah. money. But to, we, spoke, we spoke about the lunacy of if the government, if government regulation or government interference created, the pro- created a problem and you, your solution then is to create... You create more government regulation to to correct the problem that's lunacy because then the, you just keep more government regulation keeps coming in to try and sticky tape the leak the, the sinking ship yeah it's it's not a it's not a band-aid it's no. more sticky tape i think one thing to reflect on is that perhaps sometimes you need to know maybe these solutions these regulations might hamper correcting the behavior yeah. rather than helping people make those correct decisions well i think that one thing in self in reflection here is that this entire situation this entire story that we're talking about it highlights the need of the people to understand or know what the correct purpose of government actually is that's a discussion a conversation we have okay what do we want the government to actually do or better question is what should it do and what shouldn't it do if we have that sort of conversation yeah yeah well like you know get involved in marriage get involved with relationships well, we've, well, get involved at every with universities at every, healthcare well, at every step we've asked we've we've invited the government in and really the purpose 
again, we have different levels of government, right? But if we're talking specifically about the federal government, its primary job, its function is, as I see it, is national defense, but also keeping the... What, what, how did you describe well, it? Keeping the laws and That's keeping it, yeah. the courts and the justice system. That's it, yeah. I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you chop that. Sorry, I'll fungle <laughs> right, that one. Thinking about why is interest rates low nowadays? And mm. I think it's because of the fear of if we increase interest rates, then we'll end up triggering yeah. uh, this kind of recession going mm. on. But you had to, at some time, according to the situation, increase interest rates. Mm. I think I've never seen interest rates go any higher ever since you know the GFC and so you know for for kids who are saving up who want to open up a savings account yeah you're almost not worth uh, putting that money in the banks no of course not no only benefit at this point of putting it in the bank you're saving putting savings into the bank is it's got a safe as theoretically it's a safe place to put it where it's not going to get stolen Mm. that's pretty much it (laughs) It's like, so you don't have to keep it in a little lockbox underneath your mattress or something. Yeah. Like, outside of that, there's no value. One of the other things that uh, Sol notes is the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, mm. which are these stimulus programs to, to bail out these banks and, yeah. and corporations. Money is injected into the system, but mm. what he notes, it's it doesn't come in right away. It's usually over a period. It comes in lots. Mm. And so it's too slow. Yeah. And therefore, the job loss is at a higher rate than job creation. Mm. Yeah, we, we talked about what is the flow on onto people, morally, spiritually, mentally. Yeah. Is that, you know, you can count on the government. The message is you can count on government to clean up mistakes. Yeah. And does it encourage you to take more or less risk? Well, it takes... Well, more or less responsibility as well for those mistakes. Yeah. Well, less responsibility and more risk because mm. someone can clean up. Yeah. After you. But, you know, seeing banks get away with it, seeing the politicians mm. who created all these rules in the first place, then also jump into like the hearings and be the judges. Yeah. It's very demoralizing. You, you can't trust that. Well, it put it, it demoralized the people to the point of going, we can't trust. There was a loss of trust in, we'll call it, the Americans in American institutions that had been there for decades, if not a century or more. Mm. And suddenly that was ripped away violently. And we can, and people went, we can't trust you. Yeah. And, you know, I, that does, I think that does a lot of harm to the social fabric as well. I do. I do think that too, because mm. I link it back to like, say, Douglas Murray's bit about, you know, say, what's happening with this transgenderism, racism issues, BLM, mm. Mm. fourth generation feminism. He links it with the GFC. He says the ideas were all there in the first place, yeah. but you needed a mass sort of, what do you call it? Some kind of social disorder, disruption, which caused people to lack faith in themselves and look for other meanings. Yeah. If you studied something like the Weimar Republic mm. and the rise of Nazism, you had the Great Depression, and then people were looking for, they, they couldn't trust in the Weimar Republic. Yeah. They thought that was corrupt, and so they looked to they turned towards the, the communists mm. or the Nazis. Or the fascism. Yeah. Mm. So, what is the counter argument towards all these government solutions? And Thomas Sowell. He's a free market economist, studied under Milton Freeman, 
and his was a Marxist originally. He was a Marxist. Which is a fascinating story. Yeah. So one thing he writes is, uh, ironically, two Russian economists in the days of the Soviet Union saw a key fact about market economies that so many who live in market economies have missed. Mm. Everything is interconnected in the world of prices so that the smallest change in one element is passed along the chain to millions of others. And so let's get government out of the way. Let's let prices, not government policies, dictate how we use our resources and to tell the, tell the buyers, the demand and suppliers, what's the best way to use their resources. Yeah. And so do we let the market self-correct? Mm. He uses the case study about the Great Depression, the New Deal uh, given by FDR. So one thing he notes is that perhaps other countries without the stimulus and the intervention of the, the New Deal uh, were able to recover quicker mm. than America. And that is until World War II occurs and then economies of all the other nations were devastated while America, you know, all the industry was relatively intact, whereas yeah. Europe, Asia, all of them were pretty much devastated. Yeah. So he writes, it is of course not possible to conduct laboratory experiments to determine what would have happened without government intervention after the stock market crash of 1929. The closest thing to such an experiment might be experienced after the stock market crash of 1987, a decline very similar to that in 1929. The 1987 stock market crash is not remembered as vividly today as the earlier stock market crash because its aftermath was so different. Unlike what had been done by Presidents Hoover and Roosevelt, President Ronald Reagan did not intervene in 1987 despite media criticisms of his inaction. The net result of leaving the stock market and economy to recover on their own was what the distinguished British magazine The Economist later called 20 years of an enviable combination of steady growth and low inflation. This was not the only time when doing nothing produced a better track record than massive government interventions. A sharp economic downturn in the early 1920s was allowed to recover on its own and quickly did so. There had been similar results in other countries. J.A. Schupeter, writing in the 1930s about the economic downturn in England back in the 1820s, said, the inaction of government, however reprehensible on humanitarian grounds, contributed to recovery at least by not hampering it. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things I've, I've uh, noted by economists is what can government do to help mm. not getting in the way yeah. of business decisions to make the best business actions? Mm. Well, so that decision that highlights the two different approaches that government can engage down the two different pathways if you would one is government intervention and oh inaction inaction oh no it's not it's not an action though that's the thing all right well this is where i've been asked yourself pat it's mm. like um what should we do then well you're looking to me for all the answers <laughs> <laughs> um well do you agree with thomas Sowell's uh argument Oh yeah, I, t I, t I think that his observation is is pretty on point. This entire this entire story is showing what happens when you have government interfering in something that it doesn't understand, and because by its very nature, politicians are looking maximum four years in the future for yeah. their next re-election. So all of their decisions are focused around the short term as opposed to the long term of what happens. 
Yeah. So that's where you get lots of uh, a lot of kicking the can down the road. It's not a problem right now, but if I kick it down the road far enough, it will that problem will eventually be someone else's problem to deal with. Yeah. So we're seeing and we're seeing this 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 story is highlighting what happens when a in this case the American government set up institutions to tinker and tamper with the with the natural progression of the market. And the mark we saw we can now see the reaction of what happens when the market was artificially suppressed and then it exploded and caused undue amounts of hurt and pain. Mm-hmm. And now we're trying to suppress it even further because yes, they're tr- one of those crises happening again. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's probably hard to do, hard for the government to be inactive or hands off. Yeah, hands off. That's approach a good word. Yeah, because you have a scrutiny of mass media, mm. social media, and the speed of information goes round. So, one thing that comes to mind is that uh, when the federal government in the bushfires. I remember, remember that there was a volunteer bushfire saying, you know, you know, he got caught on the on the news on the media. He was mm-hmm. driving a truck and saw him leaning on the truck and goes, you know, he was giving the f bombs all to Morrison. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But at that time, it was each of the state governments were managing the fires. Yeah. So what has it got to do with with the federal government? The federal government. It doesn't. the The issue here is that Morrison is the leader, so all of the praise and the blame and hatred gets lumped onto his shoulders. That's just what happens. Which is probably unfair. It's, unfair. it's, it's definitely, yeah. definitely un- unfair, but that's, that's a bit of human nature as well, is that we look to the leader for, for all answers. That's almost like well, a bit, bit of a human condition, th- of a flaw almost, if you would, is that we're looking for someone at the top to tell us what to do. Yeah. And even if, though the blame is misplaced if it's actually someone lower down the pecking order closer to home if you would yeah uh, and i think that sort of just increases like the chance of um other organizations which are at the easy levers which the federal government can use mm. and you know what's the quickest readiest response agency that the federal government can use military yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah. yeah which again we were talking before the a good the role of the federal the national government is defense ensure that people are playing by the rules the laws Mm -hmm. and enforcing those laws right making sure that people play by the rules yeah and they're not breaking the non-aggression principle that should be the purpose of government right now we are dealing with governments all over the world that are massively expanded Mm. and they have their fingers in all these different areas and things that they aren't experts in i remember with the with the bushfires i remember the I think it might have been the New South Wales or Victorian state government. I can't remember which one. But one, one of the fire agencies said that, hey, where do you, we have fire engines that are 15, 20 years old. And my first, my first comment to that was, why have you not kept your fleet up to date? It's Morrison's fault. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what, yeah blame, blame, blame the Prime Minister. Well, essentially, and essentially, that's what that's what our media unfortunately did. They went to him and went and asked for a soundbite and went, "What do you have to say about this?" Like, I don't know. It's not, I'm not responsible for keeping the state fire engines up to date. Go talk to the premiers. But the problem is that if he were, if he didn't say that, but if he were to say that, he'd be labelled as passing the buck. Yeah, it'll be good 
happen to know what happened from the Royal Commission? Yeah. Because I think that's one of the terms of reference that they were looking at the federal government's response to to fires as well. Yeah. But another thing when you talk about, you know, it's all on on the Prime Minister. It's like, mm. well, um, I think in aviation there's a thing called accountability versus yeah. responsibility yes. managers. So the response managers do some of the actions. Mm. Um, you know, he's like the guy on the front lines, whereas the accountable manager is well, his responsibility is to provide guidance and assign resources. Yeah. So there's a bit of difference in yeah. there. Uh, another thing I th- I've noted is that government managed response to COVID nineteen is mm. it was a is it better to take a light or heavy handed approach, and are we actually cutting counting other costs? You know, small business, mental health, unemployment, future debt, are those counted as part of the the trade offs? Versus saving all these people away from the virus. I'm, I'm not sure. Do you remember the news where, I think this came out recently, that they did a study on Japan's uh, deaths, right? Yeah. And they said there are more people in Japan who committed suicide yes. than the COVID deaths. Yes, I had heard that. As a result of this it, lockdown. I think it was in the in the month of September, I think. Yeah. Specifically, they were, they were focusing on that month and compared that. Yeah. Mm. My critiques, I, I guess... And one of the lessons learned, or some of the lessons learned, is mm. that, that we don't learn from history. We have a, a danger of trusting in humans. Yeah. But, you know, humans are valuable. There's no accountability for political mistakes because yeah. we have these fixed terms. Like, whereas business, you, know, you can fire your CEO. Yeah. There's a loud voice in media and public. Mm. And if you have those on the political side, then you can pretty much change the narrative mm. of whatever was going on. So one of the sad things was that politicians who were involved with these laws and regulations were allowed which enabled this to happen Mm. were also the judges and the people who demand uh, responses from the banks it's like well you're not innocent Mm. in this case Uh, i think it's also a lesson for us about how the government gets involved with certain areas so you can apply this to university education healthcare, all these other areas and uh, we, we talked about this before about the learned helplessness that we turn to politicians and government for answers when maybe perhaps, and this is not a, a slight against them, but you know they are just a bunch of regular people. They're yeah. no dumber, they're mm. no smarter for these decisions, but they're also less accountable in some sense because you know how you can easily fire within the private industry. Mm. It's, it's harder to remove these people who are put into fixed terms in government. Yeah. Any reflections from yourself, mate? Well, to probably to tap into what you've already reflected on in regards to the role of government, I'm, I was actually reminded of a quote by James Madison, the fourth US president. And it's his quite a succinct description of what, the, I think, what the purpose of government, the role of government has. And the quote, the quote is this, is that, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on government would be necessary. And I find that as a really interesting quote because it taps into the idea that government is made up of human beings who are by their very nature fallible. Mm. And you need, government is a necessity. You need government to put to control because if you didn't have any control, then people would run amok and you'd have anarchy. Yeah. So you do need a need government, but it's a recognition that government is flawed. Mm. So it does need to have it needs to have controls and measures 
put in place to rein in abuse of power. And I think what we've been talking over talking about over the past two episodes is a case of where government has exercised power it was not delegated to by the by the U.S. Constitution, and we've seen the wreckage that that interference has actually caused. Mm. Yeah, and I think is another bit. Another bit is that uh, people always say this is a failure of capitalism that we yeah. need to have socialism or um, we need to give government intervention. But as Thomas Sowell points out. It's the, the the free market, the housing market. Mm. It wasn't quite free. No. And, and so, if you let, look at trying to get government out there, mm. out of the market, out of the housing market, and stop them from hampering yeah. uh, supplies from being able to meet the demand, mm. you could get a better result. Yeah. What is often not acknowledged is the economic system that is capitalism that we've been using in western countries for i'd say about 200 odd years now mm. what it has done to to impact the lives of everyday citizens it has brought so many people out of poverty you go back 100 years and compare what your lower income earners were living like their living conditions and compare that to what we have now and it's night and day yeah so I look at that and go, when I hear the call to throw out capitalism, replace it with some other model of governing, sorry, of running a society's economics, and I look at that and go, are you crazy? That means you're going to throw, you're going to throw out a system that has given us so, that it has created so, so much for both the wealthy, yes, but also the least. It's brought everyone up. Hmm. I, I look at those sort of calls with a lot of skepticism because it's often and it's often coming from people who haven't actually critically examined a lot of these issues and, and tapped into just beyond just the superficial headlines or the or the initial just a single data point and dug a little bit deeper below the surface. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up the actual topic of the subprime mortgage crisis mm. in part two. So. What I want to do now is to actually look back at this year. We only started this podcast uh, beginning of the year uh, when COVID hit, and now we're like, "All right, there's something to do." It's actually yeah. something that we um, we planned off uh, last year. And Pat's just uh, come on; he's happily. Uh, I remember we had the interview, and we just like, "Yeah, would you like to come on the podcast?" And, yeah, and bounce some ideas. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. We've ta- we've tackled a lot of different issues over the last uh, last twelve months, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, this was planned, I guess, uh, a f- yeah, last year, and then we developed some scripts. So then, whilst it was released in March, mm. uh, the whole thing was about you know twelve month project. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you some questions, mate. So, what were some of the things that you took away from doing this project? A lot of the topics we've spoken about initially, I hadn't necessarily thought all all that much of. So this was actually a really interesting opportunity to dig into some topics that I wasn't initially very familiar with, but you apply critical thinking skills to examine topics and dig a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one that jumps out to me was uh, the uh, sustainable energy, yep. nu- nuclear. I didn't know that much about a lot of the research than the information that we we discussed uh-huh. leading up to that discussion. But obviously reading, th- reading through some of the information, digging, uh, digging that a little bit deeper, I learned so much more. Yeah what, yeah, what particularly did you take away from that episode? 
probably how much misinformation I had uh, just absorbed as that was fact. Mm-hmm. So we we learned we we discussed that hey nuclear actually is a is, is a viable source of energy that would solve a lot of problems, but it's been cast as the boogeyman almost. Mm-hmm. So I guess again it come it it comes down I think it comes down to being able to apply critical thinking skills to issues that you're not that I'm not necessarily familiar with, and then and that being the starting point then informing myself, researching the topic and coming away with a lot more information. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Mm. So you learn more from that episode or mm. one of the things that you, one of the episodes that you know about that you learn more was the nuclear one. Yeah. What was the most enjoyable podcast? I'd probably say it was the uh, the Sunflower. The I'll, Sunflower. Get the, I'll get the full title. Or was uh, it the Helen Session one? Sorry? Which one? Was it the Hell, the prison camp? Uh, let me have a quick look at the name. Was it the, the Vietnam War PAW or was it the yeah. World War II one? It was the Vietnam War one, Inner Freedom. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, found, I, found, I found that one quite fascinating because A, it was very, a, it was very confronting looking at the experiences of... Uh, it was JC. Uh, it was uh, Jeremiah Denton. Jeremiah Denton, yeah. yeah. Uh, of what Jeremiah Denton went through. but the, And it was incredibly impressive and uh inspiring in a way to hear that he was able to persevere through mm. yeah okay that's good mm. i like that one as well mm. that was one of the books i actually wanted to talk about because not many people know about that story yeah and, and you can see it now in mass in the media i think uh i think there's one particular tv show where it had some guy captured mm. and then he was put on the tv and he was blinking the morse code and the morse oh, yeah. code was the idea was originated in that book. Of course. Yes, that's by, right. By Denton. Yeah. What we, what we wanted to do was to actually share a message out there to, say, Australians and also hopefully around the world who who might be looking, hey, what, what do these Australians talk about? And it, it's something you guys can guess that, you know, we have a Christian background, but I didn't want to be bubble bashing. But I do know, or my beliefs are, is that some of the issues, if you scratch the surface of them, that you actually find a spiritual issue. So the Finding Love podcast, that was, you know, the relationship podcast, I felt like that was also a spiritual issue. Mm. That people were putting spiritual burdens on their partners, which are unfairly so. Yeah. If you want to look at, say, Finding Meaning with Marcus Aurelius, the Stoics, all that kind of mm. stuff, that was also a spiritual issue. The learning, we're not learning from mistakes. Or we, we talked a, f- a fair bit about organizational failures and the failure to learn from history. It's the old arrogance and pride of humanity that we know best and we end up just forgetting about the lessons we learned yeah. earlier on. But, you know, but I didn't want to compete against you know, religious podcasts because I think when I look at Australian people, we are religiously apathetic, mm. which can be a good and a bad thing. I think America is fairly religious. It's mm. all around in news and TV and billboards, whereas Australians, mm. it takes a bit of... It takes a bit more effort to sort of reach out to them. I think it's also the conversations that we have between each week here is that we're not just looking at things through a spiritual or religious lens. It's that that's a that's a facet of the conversation. But what we're bringing, what we're talking about here, is a host of other aspects of that of ways you can examine an issue as well. Yeah. So, but. But even like if say if you say Australians are religiously apathetic, mm. the uh, 
humanity is religious at heart that yeah. we like to there is a spiritual component that we're trying to understand yeah that we like to worship something and we're not talking mm. about you know people bowing down but mm. we hold things sacred yeah. or we hold things taboo and we can shame people when we can mm. and shame and praise people shame and praise people at the yeah. same time so yeah. you know one of the things I, I usually tell to other people is that you know what is your spiritual idol what what do you mm. hold dear to you you just go to the you know news agent and mm. you can look at them the the rolls of magazine and which magazines do you usually go for first mm. <laughs> is it fishing golfing yeah holidaying weddings relationships mm. modeling i don't know okay so pat if you because what for some listeners out there, I, I usually do some research and I share the ideas with Pat. Now, mm. if Pat, if you could develop an episode, mm. what would you look at writing up? I'd probably be interested in tapping into, well, being half American, I'm quite interested in US history, US politics, but it's not, it's not just the, let's talk about today's politics. I'm interested in looking at I have a particular fascination with America's founding and that government was originally created and seeing if there are lessons that can be learnt from what they did then and apply those to now and how we can try and probably work on fixing some of the problems that we see in the world today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That might be something interesting to look forward to down the road. Mm. All right. Any uh, last messages for our listeners? No, not really. <laughs> All right, well, well guys, uh, I'll just uh, end up in this uh, in this episode. So, if you want to reach us, uh, go to Twitter at Fire in the Desert or g- email us with some ideas and comments at thefireinthedesert at gmail Like, share, and subscribe, and put on your social media. It gives oh gives us motivation to produce more episodes. And uh, I guess uh, have a have a good Christmas, have a good break, and we'll see you guys next year. Music is Outfoxing the Fox by Kevin McLeod at incomtech.com. 